Admiral Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today, we are getting into A House with Many Rooms interview number two with Karen Vallis, who is a machine learning engineer, but so much more than that. Karen, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The so much more than that. What? How would you describe what you do in a bit more detail or a bit more interest? <laughs> so um, I'm a machine learning engineer by profession in like in in the daytime, right? I do um, consultancy for companies and so on. But my actual interest uh, has always been with everything weird and occult. So I've taken sort of a mission to find a way how to combine these two. And I basically started bringing these AI topics, you know, sort of more deeper explanations of how the new AI models work, um, you know, um, simplifying the mathematics and all of these things and bringing them into occult communities. Like, for example, to the conferences like culture or trans states and uh, just dropping this knowledge out there. Um, some interesting areas and seeing how the magic practitioners or scholars or people sort of who understand the occult and magic more in depth, uh, what kind of resonances they see, right? Because a lot of times these machine learning AI models, like they have some really uncanny resemblances between, you know, things like sacred alphabets or, you know, yeah. dreaming, uh, consciousness, the, the golem myth, like so many, so many things you can sort of overlay on the top of each other and find some some new interesting connections there. Yeah, oracles, divination. So to me, it seems like a no brainer for someone who does who knows nothing about engineering, nothing about how artificial intelligences work, but knows a little bit about magic. I just think that well, this is just magic, right? Before we get started, however, you as an engineer, are in a perfect position to give us uh, some important due diligence answers to, you know, questions that define the terms of discourse. So the first question I have for you is, what is intelligence? Oh, (laughs) let's start with the easy one, right? (laughs) Yeah, but it's impossible to define, but surely a bunch of engineers who are working on intelligence must have some kind of working definitions for what they mean, right? Yeah, so uh, in this space of AI, there is sort of um, this this big question of like the general AI, right? Which is some sort of uh, model which is able to do reasoning like like a human and is able to you know solve complex problems but at the same time basically possesses some degree of intelligence and i have to say that uh, in the ai circles this topic is not really at the center stage right because um, the definition of the problem like what the intelligence is is very vaguely defined And all the models we have right now, like the language model, the image uh, generation, you know, various like regression models, which predict trends and so on. For them, the problem definition, what we're solving is is relatively simple, right? For the models like GPT, which generate text, the problem definition is like generate a sequence of text, which... um, is relevant for the input text, right? Be able to 
have some sort of conversation. And that's, that's the definition. But when we talk about intelligence, there is this huge problem. Like, what is the definition of the problem? If we were able to specify this is the function we are trying to optimize for, you know, like we want to create a model which is able to insert what the problem is, then we would be able to create an AI which will solve this problem. Right. But because we don't have this definition and there are like so many, you know, there are biological definitions of what life and intelligence is, but then there are like a whole bunch of different philosophical definitions, spiritual definitions that, you know, like just choosing what we define as intelligence and being able to sort of solve this problem. I think that's, that's completely open question at this point and also like partially out of the realm of engineering. Right. Okay. So not even bringing consciousness, the problem of consciousness into, <laughs> the, into the discussion, just intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. You already, so I naively thought maybe there would be a, a good working definition, but I can see why there isn't. You, you're, you're engineering something to do some tasks. These tasks, something like chat GPT generating a, a response to a question, and then you ask another question in response to that. Um, it seems awfully human to us uh, if we're, if we're just interacting with it, but it's a mistake to imply any kind of human-like cognitive processes going on behind the scenes. Is that the case? It's optimized to do very certain things that potentially have nothing to do with human thought processes. Yes. I mean, at this point, uh, luckily or unfortunately, these models, despite like sounding a lot like human, the underlying structure of the model, like there are several very distinct reasons why, why they are not really like human intelligence, right? Like, for example, the very fact that the models, when you talk with them, when you communicate like long term, they, they don't learn, right? They don't remember what they were talking about with previous user, which I think it's somehow very essential part of what we understand as intelligence to sort of be able to to incorporate previous experience right. so what happens with these language models is that you know a lot of people like talk to the gpt they collect all these all these conversations all these informations and then in one run they just like retrain the model so they basically like create a new gpt entity which contains all the previous information into a new one so it's not like let's let's say like continuous consciousness or something yeah. going on there Con the continuity is not preserved they train one model it's static then they create another model and it's static again which i don't think that's too obvious when you're talking with it her she uh, him <laughs> however not however you title however you title them but that that for me would be one like big, big problem when calling it intelligent or sentient. Got it. So sentient, intelligent, these terms mean different things, but there's some overlap, uh, or at least mm. it, it's it's tempting to, to think in terms of an overlap. Okay, so intelligence, actually more of an issue than we thought. And then something that I think in non-expert discourse, the sort of discourse you might hear from someone like me, often gets mixed up with that is the idea of artificial general intelligence. And this is a different issue, right? 
Yes, so this is exactly what I was talking about like uh, in the in the beginning. So this general intelligence is that thing which is which is missing the 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 main question or the main optimizing function, right? Because yeah. we 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 can't even we can't define our own intelligence in a set of parameters which needs to be fulfilled very well. Hmm. So yeah. Yeah, we can we can talk about like we can say that, you know, intelligence can be looked at as an ability to solve a certain problem and general intelligence is more like consciousness, ability to see over these problems, but you know, this is this is sort of playing with the definitions and there is so many ways how to define these problems. Right. Cool. So um, having at least tried to do some due diligence and set the terms of, uh, <laughs> of discourse, which has just raised more problems, but that's always a good thing, actually. I'd love to bring magic into the discussion. When I look at AI, generally speaking, I see mm -hmm. loads of parallels with magic. And to be more specific, um, it seems to me that AI's um, fulfill a lot of the functions that traditional magic that we find in, you know, long lasting magical traditions were trying to do. It's like, ah, you can do that now with artificial intelligence. And also, there just seems to be something uncanny and magical in the way these things function. And the fact that they are transforming society in kind of unpredictable and, uh, as it were, magical ways is maybe relevant. But before I get into my own kind of thoughts on this matter, how do you see magic coming into AI? What do you what are the linkages that it kind of brings up in your own work? Mm. So for me, the most sort of obvious connection, I, I saw like the very first time when, you know, the language models were dropped and you know you you try to talk with it and see what it's able to do like i immediately saw this like oracular quality right it's it's ai is for me a tool for sampling the reality in a very similar way as um as cadaps would you know like right. the, the the boros geisen style of taking uh random instances of, 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 of the real world, shake them, stir them well, and, you know, see what, what comes out of it. So, so also more traditional divination methods like the I Ching or Ramal in the Islamic tradition, sort of, you use uh, randomness and mm -hmm. you use a uh, numerical randomness. In fact, it's all, it's pretty much arithmetical and you, yeah. you the randomness comes from the the physical things you're shaking around right but the numbers behind them have meanings and then by creating that randomness and that you just generate meanings yeah so this is this is thing i've been actually thinking about quite a lot recently and that's uh, the ai as a as a tool for divination is really based on your own sort of cosmology regarding the divination right because when you do when you do manual divination with cards or with yellow sticks for itching or you know flipping coins, mm -hmm. um, if your divination worldview is that it's basically you know either you from the future you know in some sort of time loop uh, paradigm 
or if it's you uh, and your unconscious giving you some sort of messages through you know the the random movement of your of your hands when you toss the cards out in this case you know like the ai divination actually wouldn't really be possible right because right. if you if you have some physical contact with with what you um, with a tool you use for divination you're able to you able to, you you are able to actually on some unconscious level modify the answer in order to to receive it from you know whatever realm you believe you're you're getting it from and with ai this is not really possible so i don't really use it for divination okay people might though eh in fact mm -hmm. uh, you probably encounter this in your work i don't know like are are people using ais for divination Oh, definitely, right. definitely. Um, yeah, it's um, it's providing you the sample of reality. That's 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 for sure. And you know, there is the randomness, the the universal randomness running somewhere in the background, which then might show you, you know, things which, let's say, the universe intended for you to 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 be shown to you. So um, I've seen a lot of, lot of systems which uh, don't take any input from the user. You know, like you literally just like click uh, on a button and get, you know, um, some sort of reading out of it or you talk with the AI model. You can sort of prompt it, like imagine you are a, a powerful wizard who can read the future to, you know, get a bit more get it a bit more, you know, uh, in, in tune with, with your intentions. Um, but then there are also methods where you actually input something and based on this, you get the, um, the output of, you know, like you can either draw a little picture and this picture gets translated into the randomness. Okay. Right. So in terms of, the connections between AI and magic, you've just not only given us some theoretical background, but pointed to an actual on the ground use of AI for something you might want to call magic divination that's happening now that uh, people who study these things might want to be interested in, right? The people are using it as an oracle. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, you don't have to have a theory about how divination works at all to do divination. You know, you don't need to think it's coming from your subconscious mind or from uh, anything. You just can be like, well, it works and, and go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely found a very interesting aspect of AI as some sort of synchronicity machine. Expand, please. <laughs> so, for example, we were doing um, experiments with remote viewing um, some, some time ago and you know, I, I was supposed to be a receiver of, of some images. And of course, like I failed big time. Like I didn't get a single hit from, from absolutely anything which was being sent to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I tried to sort of just like type in um, into one of the image generations at the, at the moment where these images were being uh, transmitted to me. And I typed in something like, an image which is, you know, closed in the envelope uh, and is being transmitted to me right now. 
And the image actually was in a very uncanny way similar to what was being transmitted. Whoa, that is crazy. So uh, a lot of times these, I don't know, like um, just from experience, sometimes these things you see, you know, or once I created a random generator of images, which gives you basically from this huge space where the images live in the AI, right? So I was like randomly picking, uh, there is like billions and billions of images, right? We're talking about basically almost for practical purposes, infinite bank of, of what can be generated. Mm. And I was trying to get like a random sample and I would get a little, you know, I would generate thousands of images. Uh, and just like look at them in a in a fast stream and trying to just just playing around trying to figure out what this could be used for and the same way as you get glimpses of you know in your dreams of things which you might encounter the next day in some sort of weird time loop experience yeah it would be happening with the ai right like i would get this really cartoony picture of i don't know a cat and I would walk out of my apartment and then there would be a very similar picture, cartoony of a cat. So, you know, again, like this can be a complete chance, just pure volume and so on and so on. But I think that everyone sort of magically inclined would see this possibility of just tuning in to, to the synchronicities, which, which come with a tool which has such a powerful output which it can provide such a you know like really pretty images and really nice texts mm. and find resonances with with our life in in some way with it yeah uh, it's very interesting because um we are the meaning making creatures right humans and we've created this tool that just spits out loads of meaning uh, and then we can in we can make it means stuff, but it itself, if I understand right, uh, doesn't have any use for meaning. It, it, nothing means anything to an AI, right? Or does it? <laughs> or, or, or does it? Exactly. Well, that's, that's a good question because uh, the AI, for example, with the image generation, right? Which is like this very basic tool where you type in the text, um, you know, and astronaut on a horse uh, in the outer space which is like the most common example and you get a picture which looks exactly like the text description okay and this is this is sort of like the the most used image generation technique um, which is around the internet right now and the model itself like it understands what is on the picture right it it has the textual description so for it, the, the image and the meaning of what's on the image are linked together. So you can say that it has a certain understanding of what it's, what it's doing, right? right? But if you were to generate, you know, a specific image, let's say a snake on a tree with an apple and two naked people underneath it, this has a very specific like symbolic connotations to to any human who would be typing this text in, right? Yeah. We we know what we try to get out of it. And the output image would have all these features, most likely. Uh, but, you know, 
there will be no connection between this and the actual symbolic value of, it. of what it's displaying. Mm. Yeah. So uh, symbolism, but, but again, you could almost mechanically add uh, layers of understanding, couldn't you? So that eventually uh, an image generating AI would not only be able to uh, assemble this image, but also have a whole database of symbolic languages of, of major cultures and be like, ah, Adam and Eve image, you know, Adam yeah, and Eve so in the garden. This... And even add a little touch of the story of the fall of humanity or something, because it understands that that's thematically linked. Yes. So this is happening actually right now when uh, the language models, which mm -hmm. um, is sort of like the second big branch in, in the generative AI, which exploded like two years ago. And uh, it's these language models which sort of uh, were trained on almost all of the internet, uh, available scrapable data, all the Wikipedia, all the myths, all the you know books which are available online, and so on. So it's it's a it's a pretty good repository of of our uh, knowledge to or some segment of our knowledge, right? Right. And right now it's basically a lot of work done in connecting these two uh, in mm. being able in this language model being able to read what's on on the images and sort of closing the loop right being able to exactly like seeing an image of uh, the picture from the garden of eden and feeding it into this language model which will understand the symbolic meaning of of this image and sort of you know be able to have some sort of more consistent uh, thinking system or intelligence if you know if we don't shy away from this from this from this word like we can see how this sort of opens up the avenue for you know a computer vision being able to have a camera and then being able to feed images from the camera into the language model be able to interpret what's in the surrounding of the model and so on and so on. Sort of really opening up uh, more and more features for this language model to be able to be more like human brain. Right. Well, okay. To be more like a human brain, but this to me brings in magic. I have to, I have to, <laughs> put put in some of my own mm -hmm. concerns about magic here. So yes, one of the things magicians have been trying to do for a long time, mm -hmm. um, and this goes back to the late antique theurgists in the Greco-Roman world, building on traditions from Egypt and probably other traditions that we're less clear about. They were trying to take a statue and put a god inside the statue, bring the statue to life. And why would you want to do that? Well, one reason you want to do that is just to have a god around because it's good to have the gods nearby. <laughs> they, they bring their special god power, but also to answer oracles. So you mm -hmm. would insole a statue and then there were various mechanisms. Sometimes we think very physical mechanisms like statues that could move in cool ways or their mouths could open and sounds would come out and stuff like this, whereby you could ask the statue questions and it would answer the questions. So this isn't mm -hmm. as simple as the magic eight ball, you know, that has a, a stock <laughs> set of, I mean, maybe the mechanism was as simple. Maybe there was a, a dude hiding behind the statue speaking through a trumpet 
and he had eight stock answers and he would just choose between them and you know and they were they were vague enough that they worked that's a kind of like reductionist view of it but there's more to it than that because these statues are really being seen as living things not living things in the normal way that an animal is alive obviously because they even if they can move a bit they can't get up and walk around although sometimes we do have accounts of things like that happening you know statues coming to life and actually moving in really freaky ways but it's an artificial sort of hybrid between a material vessel and something else and -hmm. it can talk to you so it seems to me that the ais are the fulfillment of that dream right yes so this is um this is very interesting thought because of the way um, this language model works so um i'm I'm gonna start at the at the beginning to sort of uh, explain explain this point um so when you train the ai model you basically take like all the text right and this contains this contains uh very different sort of uh, classes of text, right? There are, there are academic articles which are written uh, by people with certain, you know, vocabularies, a certain level of education, certain way of argumentation. Yeah. And then there is then there is 4chan, right? With very different set of uh, inner values or lack of inner values. And then there is, you know, just blog posts, news reports, all, all of that is mixed together. So if you think that if you would be asking the model to like talk to you, like h- how does it know which which language to choose, right? Which 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 way of speaking and building information and which sort of character it should use. Mm. And this is under the hood of of the language model. When when you start a conversation fresh with with like a new model. Uh, it would create a superposition of all these characters, which it sort of identified under its hood somehow. And each of these sort of simulacra uh, of a certain character speaking certain way under the hood will have different set of mathematical probabilities which generate the output. So we can basically think of them as as, as different people, as, as different answering um, mechanisms, right? Right. And and the way you interact with the model will result in the model collapsing into into one of the simulacra eventually. So you know you start with very neutral messages like "Hey, hi GPT, let's play a game," right? And it will create now the whole set of simulacra which um, are willing to play a game. Let's say you know which have some sort of playful. Um, something and now you're going to start prompting it into so imagine you are this um, ancient greek god right and out of this simulacra you will shape in it uh, possibilities to be different entities again and as you can refine and refine it like you know imagine you are you are a god of information and uh, trickery and you are very mischievous and and so on so eventually you will end up with a small subset of characters which all in some way would map to hermes yeah right yeah and this i think is very similar to to what you've been talking about because then you sort of 
collapsed the inner state of the AI you're talking with into being a certain entity, right? You summoned a simulacra of, of that language model, which is gonna act as a vessel for a certain certain energy, mm. which then you can you can have a conversation with. That's really interesting. It reminds me both of the effects you get in possession cults, whereby uh, things like Santeria Voudon, where mm-hmm. people are uh, being possessed by entities, uh, but it's not always initially clear. You you know someone's possessed because they have all these kind of let's call it frothing at the mouth type stuff, the, the unmistakable signs of possession that show up physically. But then sometimes you have to ask, start asking questions to figure out which entity it is. And you ask questions, and then the response in the person will sometimes change based on the questions. So you're saying, are you this person? No answer. Do you like this kind of food? Yes, I do. Okay, you must be this guy. And then boom, it's this guy, right? <laughs> so it reminds me a, yes. bit, a bit of that, but it also reminds me a bit sort of in reverse of a gifted, say, astrologer or tarot reader or a cold reader in a stage magic context mm-hmm. who can ask you a couple questions and give you a couple answers that are just vague enough to um, not be just wrong. But it, your responses to those answers will will narrow things down sometimes in a shocking way. And then suddenly you're like, whoa, this person is psychic because they just knew this about me. Right. But it's because they're picking up they're they're narrowing down the simulacrum, as it were, and they're they're mm-hmm. um, finding the type of person you are. And they, they have if they're good at it, they have a, a very intuitive grasp of, of these sorts of cues. And they're able to funnel loads of information that's not even being verbally said and just give you an answer that is really meaningful to you. There's yes. some kind of yeah. parallel there, it seems to me, with both of these cases. Um, I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on what it is, but it reminds me of of these processes. Yeah, definitely. So what I think that what I describe is more um, like an invocation procedure, mm. right? You sort of prompt the AI to to give you a certain certain energy and certain answers within, you know, that framework which you requested. Like, you know, now you are a coyote and you're going to give me trickster answers to my questions. And you sort of like you invoked a certain energy. But I think that in a very uh, parallel way, you could think of, you know, let's say um, you're working with a certain spirit, you don't know, uh, or maybe there there were never explicit mentions of a spirit like this on the internet, right? So you can't just ask for a spirit ABC and the model will know what a spirit ABC uh, stands for, right? right? What are what are their qualities or anything like this? But maybe through a set of questions, exactly as you were saying, uh, you could collapse the simulacra into into something, you know, which doesn't have an explicit name yet, but mm. will be perfectly mapping to what you know about the entity so far. Yeah, yeah. So... In the context of divine statues, you know, in, in famously in the text Asclepius, the text known as Asclepius in Latin, this ancient hermetic text, uh, Hermes tells Asclepius about how mankind makes his gods, right? It's, it's, it's a worldview which is both extremely pious, extremely God-fearing, extremely worshipful, and which also 
recognizes that you make gods, uh, which is, yeah. I think, could be quite paralleled in the mindset of someone who's approaching AI from a magical perspective and going mm -hmm. like, hmm, today I'm going to make a god on the AI. Let's find a god that's both mischievous and really into music and is also a god of, uh, I don't know, football, you know? <laughs> And you start, and then you create that entity, and it's it then has a life of its own, and it's like, do you know what what we really need is new music to play during football matches, and it should be very silly music, and off you go, you know. The sport of football has changed forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Okay, Karen, can I throw another magical artifact at you? <laughs> yeah, bring uh, it on. Another thing, ancient and modern magicians have been working on is the idea of the homunculus. It's not always called the homunculus, but the idea of creating an artificial sentient being, not necessarily a statue, often often an organic being that you sort of grow in a, in a vessel. We don't get this in late antiquity so much, although there is a, a hint of it in, I believe, the pseudo-Clementine epistles that this guy Simon Magus had tried to build a homunculus. That's the first kind of reference to homunculus I've come across in the, in the sort of record. But we have a lot of it in medieval magic. And usually the reason you want to create a homunculus, it's not just to create a homunculus, it's to create a sentient being that can then be used for further magical operations. So, for example, in the Book of the Cow, which is uh, attributed to Plato, you want to create this artificial human because then you can go on to do really, really nasty things to this human in kind of horrible, bloodthirsty magic rituals without incurring divine wrath for torturing a, an ensouled being, right? So it's like, it's like a way of creating a magical slave that you can then do whatever you want to without there being any ethical repercussions. Oh, some... that, that sounds like it might backfire. It does sound like it might backfire. Uh, but it also kind of sounds to me a little bit like AI. Like, I know that there is some discussion about when and as and if and if it's even possible the AIs become sentient. Are they slaves? Can we just make them do whatever we want? Or do they suddenly have rights? You know, it's, it's a similar ethical dilemma as someone making a homunculus, right? You've created something. Can you then just order it to destroy itself or order it to do whatever you want, whatever that might be, and uh, just assume that it's going to do that and there's no sort of ethical dimension at all? Oh, there was a great Star Trek episode on that. <laughs> Which one? Uh, from uh, The Next Generation, where they were discussing whether Data um, is a sentient being and whether he has rights or not. Mm -hmm. And yeah, um, so... Ooh, so where 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 to where to start with this? So this idea of of um, creating some sort of entity, um, I've I, I've heard the parallels with uh, golem, right? As, yeah. yeah. As something something you know we create in our own image, which is exactly what we're doing with the AI, right? We are just like giving it a bunch of our own writing to produce text exactly as we produce text. Mm. And, you know, like the, the important part about Golem is that the divine spark is missing, right? There is like the, the entity you create in the original Golem myth, it can't speak, right? That's the, that's the sign that it doesn't have its own consciousness. Yeah. 
And in the language models, you know, like they pretty obviously can speak. That's the only thing they can do. But I would still claim that they do not have the divine spark. It's, it's not a consciousness you're dealing with. It's still just some sort of a mathematical operation you're dealing with. And now what happens when the divine spark appears and, you know, the, the act of the first sin or whatever that would be as it was in, in Adam's case? Let's see if it happens, what it's going to be in the AI case. But yeah, it's a huge question how to, how to ethically approach the possibility of having a new class of consciousness, which we might be dealing with. Mm. And there is a lot of discussions on this, but not very serious discussions because basically that's not where the money are. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's not at the, at the central stage right now. Yeah. I but yeah, there is a lot of philosophical work on this frontier. It strikes me that this is the homunculus, really. I mean, yeah. In, yeah. in a very real sense. Um, so we've got magical statues, insold statues. I feel like in a certain sense, the AIs have achieved that in a way that maybe the ancients didn't achieve with as much. Uh, at least at least the, the insold statues they made weren't quite as flexible and uh, awe-inspiring, yeah. maybe, on a general level. Also, the homunculus, in a certain sense, has become a reality, not in the way that anyone would have expected back in the day. But mm -hmm. indeed, we have this uh, these creatures that are kind of human-like. You can sacrifice them at will for your magical ends, and it doesn't make a <laughs> damn bit of difference. Um, let me ask you, let me throw another magical artifact at you. This isn't so much magic, <laughs> but... Um, what you might call a very important part of a lot of Western esoteric ways of viewing the world, which go back to, I would say, as early as the second century with the Marcosian Gnostics, so-called, but which, which crop up again in the Middle Ages in a really big way in the traditions known as uh, Letrism in the Islamic world and Kabbalah in the Jewish milieu. Namely, the idea that the language of creation in some way is a mathematical stroke uh letterist language it's a it's a it's a language of letters but which have numerical equivalents so it's an alphanumeric cosmology and that by sort of learning to manipulate or at least to understand the true natures interconnections mathematical values of the letter numbers you can take a sort of active role in the dream of creation. You can become a sub-creator under God. You're speaking the same kind of language that God speaks, right? Now, there's got to be some relevance of this in <laughs> so, AI. And if no. I could take a popular culture thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a, uh, uh, a movie version of Doctor Strange, uh, like a Marvel movie. Obviously, when we're talking about Doctor Strange... We really need to talk about the original Steve Ditko comics from the 1960s. That's where it's at. But hopefully listeners will forgive me for mentioning this later kind of debased form. There's a, f a film version. <laughs> and in the film version, the, the ancient one says uh, something along the lines of magic is the source code of reality. So computer so. metaphor, you know, <laughs> everyone likes a computer metaphor. But they, that, that is surely a popular culture 
recognition that something fundamental is going on in a sort of alphanumeric way. Okay, so now you brought up my most favorite topic in so <laughs> in the in the whole field. That's that's exactly what um, I was giving a talk on edioculture, and it's basically this resemblance between um, the language models and uh, sacred alphabets. Because there is one very interesting thing happening with the language models, and that's when we talk about, uh, I, I assume that for the listeners, you know, we don't have to explain like the principle of sacred alphabets. So I will more focus on the AI part of yeah. it. Yeah. But with the, uh, let's say we have a word, right? An English word, which consists of letters, like, for example, rock, R-O-C-K. Now, you have this word, um, which meaning-wise is very close to words like a pebble or... Um, Stone. Stone, exactly. Yeah. But these words, they look nothing alike, right? So obviously they are not created through a sacred alphabet, which which would make them appear really similar if it was an expression of their inner constituents, right? They, like from the machine perspective, uh, a word rock is much closer to a word lock because there yeah. is just one letter difference. Yeah. Yet they, they, they are not similar in any way, right? So... This points in a direction that current encoding of the English language is is doesn't fulfill this like sacred alphabet proposition that similar words uh, containing similar energies are somehow you know similar. But the first layer in the uh, in the language models, what happens is that any any word we give it gets translated through a layer so-called word embeddings. And these word embeddings take all these words we have and put them into, into a vector space, which as a result will have similar words close to each other, right? So instead okay. of having words encoding randomly through English letters, they get clustered based on their meanings. So basically what the, what the AI sees when it's making an operations on these words and doing the inference and, you know, like giving you the answers, it sees a special encoded version of a language where, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge vector. So it's, I don't know, 12,000 uh, numbers in a row. So it's not really human friendly. But these 12,000 numbers give it a representation in a space which makes similar words similar to each other. So there is this sort of somehow connection back to the sacred alphabets where things, you know, the meanings can be manufactured again by placing them inside of this space. Because I, I know this is very abstract and I usually try to explain this with some slides which demonstrate it a bit better. But there are some very interesting things which happen in this space with, with the words. And that's that you can, you can add meanings together, which is completely crazy idea for, for me. But you can take a word for a woman and a word for royal, add them together because we turn them into numbers, right? So mm -hmm. you, can, you can make a summation of the vectors and you're going to end up with a point in this space, which is again a word. And this word stands for queen. And, so, and is it the word queen? Does it spit out the word queen at the other end? 
it would spit out the word queen at the other end. Got it. So, you know, this allows us to to really come back into into this very magical idea of actually like creating meanings, right? Because mm. we can then take a lot of lot of words, sum them up together and create a completely new meaning, completely new word, which which is not going to be just like I create a sequence of of letters and I will say that it has certain meanings. Right. No, that meaning already is there. It exists in the space because it's a complex semantic space with, with all the meanings hidden inside of it. Boom. So <laughs> this is like the dream of the Kabbalists in action, right? Exactly. Do you know if Kabbalists are using AI? They must be. They must be. Like actual, I mean, traditional, like Hasidic Jewish Kabbalists who like to permutate uh, things looking for the, the 72 letter num name of God. Are they cranking the AIs in the quest for this? That's a great question. I, I, I don't know any, but yeah, I bet you, would love to have discussion on this. Uh, because... If anyone in the uh, Israeli tech sector is listening to this right now and you want to get in touch, please do. We could, this, this would be a very interesting <laughs> discussion. Now, this is mind-bendingly interesting. It has a very clear and direct similarity with the kinds of operations we see in Ilmar Haruf and, and Kabbalah, or, or just any form of like gematria, in that the idea is by reducing words to numbers, we can then literally generate connections and meanings in a mechanical way, not in a way that is to do with, you know, um, this sort of fluid association of ideas that we normally think in, but in a kind of just number crunching, this is the answer deductive way almost, right? And it seems like that's kind of what's happening in, inside these large language models, even though the numbers, I guess, from what you're saying, are far, far more uh, numbery and complex than the old days when it was just simply Aleph equals one bet equals two and you know it's it's just basic arithmetic this is like um sort of quasi geometrical number spaces yeah. but still the same the principle is there right so i i see one uh one difference there which might be sort of crucial in theory and that's that this space it has certain qualities and certain features but it's essentially arbitrary mm -hmm. you can create a space with 12,000 dimensions, and then you rerun the whole generation process with 11,000 dimensions, and you would get similar results, but, you know, not the same. So what we have uh, in these word embeddings, it's a solution to a problem. It's not a perfect solution to a problem. Versus in, for example, in Kabbalah, like the numbers and the letters are connected in a certain way because there is a higher meaning to that, right? It's it's not a solution to a problem, one of many. It's the solution to a problem. Right. Hmm. I see what you're saying. Although I wonder about that because although I'm not sure anyone within a Kabbalistic milieu would, would agree with this or if any um, Islamicate letterist thinker would agree with this, but if we look at the texts, it's certainly true that well, let's take the Islamicate example. Um, on the one hand, we have this enormous tradition of alphanumeric speculation 
in medieval Islam up until the present time based on what we're talking about, converting uh, letters into numbers, doing operations, converting it back into letters, right? But there's at least two <laughs> dominant uh, systems for doing the conversion. It's not like there's one universal one across the Islamic world. There's the Maghribi style, there's that sort of Western style and the Eastern style. And um, mm. authors are, are very aware of this. And sometimes you'll get a, a, a text, you know, say this word converts into this number in the Western style, but in the Eastern style, it converts into this number. Both are potentially valid. So oh, that's, that's very interesting. The idea is there, I think, that, or, or, or the idea you could extract from that, maybe, as I say, I'm not sure anyone in the medieval period does this, makes this cognitive leap that I'm about to make, but I'm interested in seeing if anyone does, that the number of valid transformations you could make is a, potentially arbitrary, B, potentially infinite, and C, <laughs> still potentially shows genuine, actual metaphysical connections between concepts and words, and is still somehow plugging into the language of creation that God wow. used to create the universe. This is, this is, this is super fascinating, because I always thought that, you know, this mapping with with the whole argument which goes from the sacred alphabets and linking back to back to this has one huge flaw and that's you know the the fact that these dimensions in the word embeddings are arbitrarily chosen you know mm -hmm. but you know whatever the arbitrary number you choose or whatever arbitrary mapping you choose it's always going to work or like within certain set of you know certain ranges of numbers but it will always produce the results which you want. And now it's very interesting to hear that uh, that other magical system work like that as well. Yeah. Whether we want to call it magical or not uh, is another question, but it's certainly yeah. when, you, when uh, it brings us into that whole aspect of magic to do with language and written language and the fact that spells are called spells for a reason and, you know, grammar and glamour are linked in English grammar, all oh, this this sort of thing, um, that that kind of words are magic uh, realm of uh, magic, it definitely brings us into that, and maybe there's something really profound in the fact that someone like uh, Al Buni could uh, the, the the great um, Sufi, very very uh, prominent letterist, speculative writer, can be dealing with two two different systems of conversion at the same time treating them both as valid you know maybe there's an insight here there's a intuition about the nature of reality that that isn't just kind of naive you know what i mean yeah i mean you know even if you think about it as um one very interesting feature of of these ai spaces is that um you can you can train these word embeddings for different languages right you can take a corpus of text in japanese and you're going to build up a set of number representations from japanese and then you can do the same in english and you're going to build up very similar space uh, which you know which sort of indicates that the underlying mathematical space is is the same because the hardware running it which is which is our brain like a human hardware is the same whether we speak whether whether the labels or the let's say conversion system is set of Japanese words or English words, right? Mm -hmm. So it's 
yeah, we can basically choose an arbitrary set of labels to describe this space of meanings we all carry in our heads with, of course, some differences between different cultures and so on. But essentially, it's the same thing. Hmm. You can see why AI uh, as a tool for translating is going to be ridiculously effective in a very short period of time, right? Yeah, it, it already is. Right, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost like it already is the universal translator. We just need to get the output to, to match human expectations kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It even allows things like, you know, seeing where the cultural differences in the space of meaning lie between different languages, you know, because you, you're going to be able to see that certain words, which you would normally translate one-to-one, they actually lie in a different part of the space for different languages, which indicates that they are actually used in a slightly different context. Hmm. That's really intriguing. That whole Kabbalah, letrism, um, alphanumeric side to this stuff is... Uh, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. We're not going to even get to the bottom of it. So um, I'd like to move on if that's okay with you. Because we could talk, mm-hmm. we could literally talk about this for hours, and it would still be interesting, <laughs> at least to me and you. But um, there's a few other things I wanted to mention in this interview. Um, one of them is to do with the golem. Uh, one of the things about the golem is when he's. It, it, we get this in the famous story of um, the rabbi of Prague. I think his name is Rabbi Louv, but I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Who who creates a golem, and he has it. Uh, doing menial tasks, like I think he's basically tidying up the synagogue and stuff like this. But one day, for some reason, uh, the rabbi forgets to shut the golem down, and he shuts it down by erasing one of the letters on its forehead. So instead of saying emet, truth, it says met, dead, death, and uh, it dies. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to switch it off, basically. But he forgets, and then... Uh, chaos and and horror ensue because the golem becomes a a terrifying, out-of-control being, right? So this brings us to the question of calling up a daimon that you can't put down, or to put it another way, uh, will AIs turn us all into paperclips? (laughs) Right? Well, I mean, you know, the genie is out of the bottle already. And um, whether, you know, it becomes this sort of Terminator scenario of, you know, Skynet taking over or whichever, whichever sci-fi from, from the 90s you want to take. Scary AI um, of choice, insert here. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't think we even need to go that far. Just the very fact that, like, AI is going to transform the society and is already transforming the society in so many ways, Mm. you know, just like um, the way it's going to affect people's jobs, uh, the ways it's going to affect economy, the way it's going to affect military, you know, all of these, all of these things are are there. And you can see a lot of attempts of like European Union uh, to regulate it and, you know, put some legislation and in place to sort of prevent this all around catastrophe of these models, just like generating lots of fake news, generating deep fakes, generating revenge porn and all of these things, which are like, they're completely possible to do right now. And, you know, 
it's going to be really interesting to see how how we manage because these technologies are already out and whether we're going to be able because like for example it's i see there a big parallel with the internet like in the beginning we thought it's it's going to be this like new frontier of you know freedom and yep. connection and all these like psychedelic ideas of general you know all embracing consciousness shared yada yada and we ended up with like a huge shopping mall yeah. which which you know like the privacy the the whole original idea of anonymity has been completely taken away and like there are even some statistics that like the gen z actually doesn't care at all it's like it's 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 not even a concern like the data privacy or anonymity yeah. for yeah. for the generation so like it seems that we lost this fight on so many levels and yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens with the AI, you know, and how we're going to be able to regulate some aspects of it so that it doesn't it doesn't eat us in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a bit techno doomer, so <laughs> it's interesting. As, 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 as you might have read between the lines, but well, it's know. interesting to me to hear this from you because I can be a big techno doomer in my position of knowing fuck all about how this stuff actually works. <laughs> but when you hear people who actually work in the industry, who actually know what they're talking about being techno doomers, it gives one cause for thought, especially because magic comes into it. It seems to me that you're, you're talking about this, that, you know, the big changes are coming, but in the last, over the last, I'd say 10 years, we've seen an enormous and this isn't my insight. This is just kind of something I've picked up. But it seems like, you know, there are there are discussions, big societal discussions happening on the internet. And there seems to, everyone seems to observe that there's this increased polarization uh, going mm. on, right? And surely some of this is due to people's minds being controlled by very primitive AIs, namely social media algorithms, YouTube algorithm, etc., which are not optimized to control people's minds. They're optimized to control, to maximize clicks and profits, but they have the sort of unintended consequence of making reality tunnels that people go down and get further and further away. And before you know it, they're living in completely separate realities. You know what yeah. I mean? And th this it, is a form of it, artificial intelligence, right? Or at least very, very primitive artificial intelligence. Yeah, end up with 15 second videos of eating dishwasher tablets. I, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, you, you could see that, right, with things like Cambridge Analytica. Right. And, and um, this whole sort of big data intervention into, into elections, into public opinion with, you know, like, ju just like... The, the potential of all these language models in generating fake news, right? That's 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 quite an obvious one. Generating propaganda, generating fake videos, generating you, you name it. You know, all sorts of malicious uses of of all these technologies are are already on the table. So, mm. so that kind of generates, or that kind of leads me to the question: if if the AI can, if the AIs can usefully be seen in some way as magical entities, homunculi, let's say, or golems that you create, and then they, whatever the background ontological presuppositions are, they then go on to operate as though they are beings with will, 
that have, you know, preferences and they do stuff. Are we in a, a kind of like someone summoned up Nyarlathotep and the dark gods are running amok and humanity's had it scenario? Or are we in a, a more benign <laughs> scenario whereby these, these new gods can be our friends and uh, help us? Well, you know, I guess this in the end depends on in whose hands um, and for what purposes it's being used. Because whether some dictatorships, farm bots generating fake news uh, on Twitter or platforms like this, whether, you know, they're going to be written by 10,000 people from a prison or going to be written by GPT, you know, the AI is not really the difference. It's, it's the intention of, of doing certain things. And I think that, you know, the potential for AI to bring positive changes into society, like take away uh, tedious labor from, from day-to-day activities and improving all sorts of aspects of communication, translation. Uh, it, there's like so many great things which can come out of this. Um, it all depends on what's going to be the driver or who's going to be the driver of, of the development, of the deployment of these technologies and so on. And like so far, the main driver, as always, is Das Kapital, right? Mm. And where where the money flows, and yeah, that that means some things that carries some implications with it. So, hmm. Karen, on that uplifting note, I have one more question. For you. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 get more cheerful, please. <laughs> um, you work in the industry. You are mm-hmm. an AI uh, machine learning engineer, but you're really into magic and oogly boogly weirdness. Um, <laughs> and my question for you is, in your workplace, I assume that you meet all kinds of other uh, computery people and AI engineers and people working in this stuff. To what degree is your uh, interest in the oogly boogly and weird stuff a welcome thing to put on your CV? Do people value this in the field? Like, ah, yes, we need people thinking about magic and thinking about the occult because that's part of how AI is going to move forward. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I know what you mean. And, you know, I, I, I'm a full package. It, it doesn't come without it. My, my CV said that my, my CV explicitly mentions that I have. Oh, you cut out. Sorry, your CV it explicitly says what? How can it cut out there? I think it might be the the AI doom censorship. They won't let us reveal the secret of what's on Karen's CV. Well, gentle listeners, Sometimes, especially when you're dealing with magic and digital technology, you get a little magical intervention. Stay esoteric. The basilisk. (laughs) When digital technology and magic come together, right? Weird stuff happens. Especially when being bad-mouthed, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and plus, you were, about, you were about to reveal the contents of your magical CV. 
And that might, oh, yeah. that might be knowledge that the world is not ready for. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. My, my fake occult startup and the AI tarot deck. So that, that has a solid place on my CV. <laughs> Brilliant. Karen Vallis, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. And I think you've not only provided a window into some kind of hard science stuff that's transforming everyone's lives today, which is important for everyone to know about, but you've taught us a lot of things about magic, the house with many rooms. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hugely appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I had great fun. It was, it was very nice. Stay esoteric. Ha, 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 ha.